Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. To celebrate Australia's National Science Week, we find out about some amazing Australian scientific research. From thousands of students coming together to break a world record in a scientific experiment, to citizen scientists in the deep, Plus, we find out about launching university students' projects into space and some amazing work bringing arts and science together. National Science Week is underway here in Australia. And what a better way to kick it off than by breaking a world record for the largest practical science experiment. Now... Just under 3,000 Queensland students, ages from years 5 to 10, from across 35 different schools in Queensland, gathered at the Brisbane Convention and Entertainment Centre on, gathered on Thursday, the 11th of August. And together, they put on a fantastic show. And not only that, they broke the Guinness World Record for the largest collective science experiment with the largest number of people, 2,895 to be precise. And that smashed the previous record set by South Africa, with 2,102 students set last year. So what did they do? Well, the Queensland students were grouped into different groups of four. And they were all given a white box which contained the materials needed for their practical lesson on magnets. The boxes included things such as metal filings, paper clips, magnets, paper bowls. And it was used by the students collectively to learn about the power of magnets. And they're all led by teachers on the stage. And it brought together students from both metropolitan and regional schools. And it was a great way to expose a variety of people to some of the great things that science can do. And that's the whole purpose of National Science Week, which is an Australian government and Aspiring Australia initiative between the dates of 13th to the 21st of August. So by the time you're listening to this, there's still a chance to get out there and enjoy the most of what National Science Week has to offer. This includes everything from science cinema festivals, uh, practical citizen science and biology experiments, tours of venues, talks, lectures, practical activities for people of all ages and all interests. So get out there, head to scienceweek.net.au to find out more and find out about some interesting events near you and you can take part in some, some great science activities. So the mass collaboration there on the scientific experiment in Queensland shows you just the power of uh, people coming together to perform science and that it's not just restricted to people in research institutions, laboratories, companies or people with highly specialised qualifications. A lot of science is done by people in the public getting involved and this area is called citizen science. And citizen science is very useful, particularly in the areas of classifying, identifying and finding and tracking different biological species. And the top citizen scientists basically in Australia, are divers. Some new research being published by Southern Cross University has outlined how divers are actually helping build a really detailed and deep understanding of our marine ecosystems and environments. So environmental social researcher Vicky Martin from Southern Cross University did a large national survey of people interested in contributing to marine citizen science. And they found that over the 1,145 
survey respondents taking part, the predominant amount of them were actually divers who had a very strong passion and interest in this. Now, a lot of people care a lot about the oceans and the life in the oceans, but the divers were the ones, over half of them, were actually willing to volunteer at least once a month to help contribute to cataloging and understanding the marine environment and ecosystem. And what does that mean? Well, they actually really help with data collection. Things like recording sightings of marine species, monitoring coral growth, sending fish frames to scientists, logging fish catch compil or catch compilation data, and compiling lists of marine debris in particular locations. And this is really, really important information for marine researchers who use this to help plan their studies, plan their activities, and track the studies over time as well. Now, most of the respondents below the age of 45 actually were very, very interested about contributing to citizen science projects. And pretty much all of them are very willing to share the data that they've done with university-based researchers, some with CSIRO as well, and then lower down the list, obviously, private research companies. And of course, in Australia, where we have the Great Barrier Reef, there's a strong passion in our country for looking after our marine ecosystems and environments, and divers are no exception to that. But it just goes to show that citizen science is not just something that you can do by staring at the stars, cataloging birds or other animals. It can be even in the waters. And there's a lot of passion and support out there for it. So if you're thinking about doing a project in the marine environment, think about citizen science. Or if you are involved in the marine environment, think about potentially contributing and sending in some of your data to research groups who would love to hear from you. So one of the things that's really interesting when you're studying science or engineering at university is you learn all these great concepts, but you often actually rarely get the opportunity to put it into practice. It's not every day that, you know, you get to build a huge machine or project that helps change the face of the world. In fact, as an undergraduate, you spend a lot of your time uh, just learning the very basics. But some universities in Australia have been very, very active in giving their students access to real industry-changing projects with real tangible results. Many universities participate in the Formula SAE Challenge, which at one part is just building racing cars, but there's a lot of actually science and engineering involved in that. The other is the UAS Challenge, which is an unmanned aerial vehicle challenge that works on using drones for basically safety and rescue applications. And universities' teams compete from across Australia in that, which is another great area of students getting practical experience. But one university has a project to rise above all others, quite literally, and I don't mean that from a prestige ranking, I literally mean that they are sending three research satellites into space from the International Space Station. And these research satellites, they're not just going up to do uh, basically a vanity project, they're up there to do real active science. And they're all being launched out of projects from the University of New South Wales in Sydney. So three total satellites, two of them actually physically built at the University of New South Wales, will be launched from the International Space Station shortly. They'll be deployed into orbit to analyse and study a little understood region of the Earth's atmosphere, the thermosphere. And it's part of a larger international mission called QB50, which will send a swarm of about 50 small satellites called CubeSats, weighing about 2 kilograms each, to carry out very, very extensive measurements of the region of space called the thermosphere, which is between 200 and 300 kilometers above the Earth's surface. 
And basically, the reason why we care about the thermosphere is that is where pretty much most of our communications and weather formation activity takes place. It also helps shield Earth from cosmic rays and solar radiation, which, contrary to what superhero movies would have you believe, is actually something that's pretty important that we protect ourselves from. The problem is that we really don't really understand it very well. And yet, that's pretty much the boundary between Earth and space, where a lot of the ultraviolet and X-ray radiation from the sun gets dissipated into things like auroras or hazards that can affect our electricity grid or even our communications. So the Australian CubeSats as part of the QP50 project include the UNSW EcoZero, EC0, and which will be studying the atomic composition of the thermosphere, and INSPIRE 2, a joint project between UNSW, University of Sydney, and ANU, which will be looking at the electron temperature and, and density of plasma in the region. University of Adelaide and University of South Australia are also getting involved in the project with SUSSAT as well. And all these projects will be going up and then launched from the International Space Station. Each of these satellites has smaller experiments on board built into them. For example, a robust computer chip designed to avoid crashing in the harsh radiation environment in space. Um, basically, to protect itself in this strange environment. And, for example, some of them are testing new and innovative ideas, such as the university's EC0's chassis, which is entirely made from 3D-printed thermoplastic. So, basically, to see if they will be a reliable space material. Now, this is not the first time that an Australian CubeSat has gone into space. FedSat was a 58-kilogram experimental microsatellite was launched in 2002. And it's a great example of showing how students can be involved and participate actively in the design operations, and running of industry-leading research in fascinating groundbreaking areas. It's not every day that you say that the stuff that you do in your course, your studies, your schooling, actually contributes to global science, but in this case it is. And you learn valuable lessons about collaborating across universities and internationally. It's a great example of how education can be about more than just learning from a book and taking exams, but actually leaving a real-world impact out there. A lot of the time, people get caught up in this tribalistic argument between science and arts that lies as if there's some kind of war between the two that there can only be one victor. But in reality, the situation is very, very different. Art is very useful in explaining scientific concepts. For example, Drew Berry out of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute in Melbourne, Weehai, do fantastic work, industry-leading work in visualising biochemical processes which really help people understand and make new discoveries on actual biomedical research. Similarly, there's a lot of scientists who use art as a mean, as a vehicle for actually explaining their concepts and ideas or exploring new ones. And sometimes, artists need scientists. And this is the case where a very large physics research facility in Australia, the Synchrotron in Melbourne, has been converted into an expert in early 20th century French art. Edgar de Gasque was a very famous French Impressionist painter. His works 
a very beautiful and a very interesting from the period of the 20th century. And for a while now, people have been suspecting that the picture, the painting, Portrait of a Woman, was hiding something. There was more to it than met the eye. And they could see faint outlines or things hidden underneath the picture, but no one really could understand what it was. And that's where the synchrotron comes in. Now, the synchrotron is basically a particle accelerator. Think CERN, but smaller and a little bit more manageable. And unlike CERN, which is the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, which is primary purpose is to, you know, smash particles and study the very fabrics of the universe, the synchrotron is actually pretty much used for creating high-energy particles for use with imaging. Now, electron microscopes are pretty much this typical microscope we use at the moment. You basically excite and charge up an electron and pass it through an object and thus can view into it. And that's great because you actually get really interesting pictures of something deep down. But it's a challenge because there's only so much that you can see with that, and there is a literal limit. Nobel Prizes have been won recently about improving the way we visualize and peer down even smaller into the fabrics of objects. But the synchrotron is actually able to provide really high energy, highly charged particles, which then can be used to study things. And they do this through a method called X-ray fluorescence, or XRF. And this is used not just by physics people or material scientists trying to study the properties of uh, some random subatomic particle, but actually used by companies such as, you know, Cadbury or even artists to actually understand the materials that they're looking at and peer beneath the surface in a way that had never before been done. Think about it, about the difference between going from a camera with about 15 or 12 megapixels like you might find in your phone to one with over 100. That kind of substantial improvement in resolution and quality really helps you piece together the real picture or peer beneath the top layers and see deep inside. And that's what they did with this portrait by Edgar Degas. So Daryl Howard, David Thurwood and other colleagues from CSIRO actually took this painting and used the XRF imaging technique to study the layers beneath. Now, normally, if you don't do this, you can kind of see a faint outline of a second face, but you can't see it in much detail. But using the XRF technique and then applying false coloration techniques over the top of it to apply the properties of the potential paints used there, you can actually see a second hidden painting of another portrait of another woman's face of the model Emma Diondi. And that's really quite interesting and fascinating. Buried beneath this beautiful portrait of Portrait of a Woman, there's another portrait of another woman, just as beautiful and as interesting. And you can tell that the artist was experimenting and messing around with different forms. At the time, the Garces liked to play with the idea of having painted pixie-like ears with a bit of a point to them. And, you know, typically he, he, he did experiment with this, but then many paintings actually survived of that because people actually want to have portraits that look like them. So if you look at the actual final picture, you see something very different. But under this raw form, you see him playing with ideas that eventually got covered over and painted with something that was much more commercially viable, at least for the artist. Now, what this really shows is that this fascinating way to use an actual scientific research facility for bringing together art and science, these two things that can coexist peacefully and help each other and don't need to be at war. And they can help learn more about each other. New imaging techniques can be developed by the physicists and new ideas and understandings of art and art history can be learned by the artists. 
and it's truly a harmonious collaboration. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. Students breaking world records, students' projects getting launched into space, divers helping us unlock the secrets of the deep, and art and science together. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.